So now I want you to think back a few moments ago to that time of confession. I had someone tell me recently that I don't give long enough in the silent part. He said, you don't give me long enough because I'm just getting started. And you say, Amen. Is that your experience? Week after week, do you still find yourself with a long list of things that you need to confess before the Father? A long list of our disobedience. Why is that? Week after week, why is obedience so hard? Is there anything that can be done to help? Anything that will bolster or, or improve our obedience? We're looking at the 23rd chapter of Joshua this morning. We are so very close to the end. We've got one or two sermons to come out of the 24th chapter and we'll be done. But we find in chapter 23 an important shift taking place. It's a shift that occurs frequently in Scripture. It's a shift from the indicative to the imperative. And if your English grammar classes are too far in the history... Indicative. It's a, it's a statement of fact. It's an expression of what is. An imperative, though, is, is a command. It's, it's an order, a request, an, an instruction, something to do. And so in the Bible, we have lots of indicatives. Lots of statements of fact about who God is, about what He's done for His people. In essence, these are gospel statements. These are statements of good news. God sent His Son to rescue sinners. God reached out in love to rebellious enemies to make from them daughters and sons. Indicative statements of fact about His saving work, about His blessing for undeserving recipients. And the Bible also has plenty of imperatives. Commands and laws to obey, instructions to follow, standards to uphold. And we see very often a shift from one to the other and when you see the shift, it's important to note the order. The indicative, always, always precedes the imperative. It's always statements of how we have been rescued and blessed, followed by statements of how then we are to live as a result. 
And this is so very important. This order of these two is what separates Christianity from every other religion in the world. Because every other religion in the world says, behave and you will be blessed. But friends, that is not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. If that's your understanding of Christianity, then it's wrong. It's just flat wrong because the gospel says, because you have already been blessed, you are now enabled and expected to behave. Your already blessedness enables and empowers your obedience. Get this order wrong and you lose Christianity. Get it right and your struggle for obedience, my struggle for obedience, begin to gradually improve. Now, before I show you this, this shift, this shift from indicative to imperative in Joshua, I want to point you to a couple of other biblical examples because it's all throughout the Scriptures. Paul's letters are often great examples of this, probably the most common. Consider Romans. This very famous verse in Romans, Romans 12.1. I appeal to you therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So there's, a, there's command here. There's instruction here. There's, there's expectation. There's behavior. This is very much an imperative statement. But y'all, this is chapter 12 of his letter. And this is really the first statement like this that you find in the letter. Twelve chapters in, two-thirds of the way through the letter. Well, what has he said for the first eleven chapters? There are eleven beautiful chapters overflowing with gospel indicative. It's, it's Paul's magnum opus on the gospel. This is what the Lord has done for you in and through the gospel. Paul wants to say over and over and over again, here's how you have been blessed. Here's how grace has been lavished on you. Now, as a result, here's what your life needs to look like. Now, in response to the first 11 chapters, live thusly. Here's how you've been blessed. Here's how that blessing enables your right behavior. Ephesians is another great example. First three chapters, 
Gospel, gospel, gospel. Grace upon grace upon grace. And then just like Romans 12, 1, we've got a hinge verse, a pivot verse, if you will, in Ephesians, and that's 4, 1. Here's where the shift takes place. I therefore, all right, so the therefore, there was a therefore in 12, 1. There's a therefore here, right? When you see a therefore, you need to pay attention to what it's there for, right? It's the shift. Because of all this, now this, when we eventually, and I promise we will get to the Joshua passage, there's a therefore. I therefore, prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Urging, walking, behavior. It's imperative that has been preceded by glorious gospel indicative. But you see, this isn't just a rhetorical device that Paul came up with. It's been God's order and design all along. So one more place that I'll draw your attention to, think about the Ten Commandments themselves. It doesn't get more imperative than thou shall not. But do you remember how they're introduced? Do you remember what precedes the Ten Commandments? God says, oh, I'm pretty mad. You better get your act together if you want me to bless you. No, that's not what He says. The verse that immediately precedes the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, verse 2. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out. I brought you out. I rescued you from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Therefore, and the therefore is understood, no other gods before me. You're going to worship me alone. You're not going to lie. You're not going to steal. You're not going to be unfaithful. It's not obey so that you might be rescued. It's, I'm your rescuer. I've already rescued you. Therefore, live like this. And this is the shift that we also see in Joshua. Because for 22 chapters, what have we seen? I, the Lord, have given you this land. I, your God, will fight for you. I, the Lord, will do it. And we've already seen that every single promise that He's made has been fulfilled. At the end of chapter 21, we saw that not one word of His promise had failed, but they had all, every one of them, come to pass. And so now in 23, here comes the shift. It's the, okay, so now what? And as we look at this shift, and as we try to remember and appreciate everything that came before it, we stand to gain quite a bit of help in our understanding of obedience, in our struggle for obedience. So if you're able, I'd like to ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word. Joshua 23, I want you to look for the shift 
that takes place. And I want you to think about everything that's led up to this, the 22 chapters that preceded this. A long time afterward, when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies, and Joshua was old and well advanced in years, Joshua summoned all Israel, its elders and heads, its judges and officers, and said to them, I am now old and well advanced in years, and you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake. For it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. Behold, I have allotted to you as an inheritance for your tribes those nations that remain, along with all the nations that I have already cut off from the Jordan to the great sea in the west. The Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight, and you shall possess their land just as the Lord your God promised you. Therefore, be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left, that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you, or make mention of the names of their gods, or swear by them, or serve them, or bow down to them. But you shall cling to the Lord your God, just as you have done to this day. For the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations. And as for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day, One man of you puts to flight a thousand, since it is the Lord your God who fights for you, just as he promised you. Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you, and make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. And now I'm about to go the way of all the earth, and you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. But just as all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you have been fulfilled for you, so the Lord will bring upon you all the evil things until He has destroyed you from off this good land that the Lord your God has given you if you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God which He commanded you and go and serve other gods and bow down to them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and you shall perish quickly from off the good land that He has given to you. May the Lord bless the reading, the teaching of His inspired, inerrant, infallible, and authoritative Word. Let's go to Him in prayer. Uh, Here we stand again, Lord. We've stood because we want, uh, in some small way, for our physical postures to reflect what we hope the attitude of, of our hearts and our minds is. Lord, that we're submitting to what You say, that we are showing reverence for You and for Your Word. Now bring it to bear upon our lives, we pray, through the power of Your Spirit. Give us understanding. Give us insight. But much more than that, Lord, change us. Transform us. Help us. We pray in Christ's name and for His sake. Amen. Please be seated.
Five things I want us to see in this passage. Five things that I think will help us to understand the nature of real, biblical, and lasting obedience. You've got an outline in your worship folder. The first thing is this. Obedience flows from grace and never to get grace. Obedience flows from grace. And this is really just a restatement of that whole indicative before the imperative thing, but it needs restating. It cannot be restated enough. Real, lasting obedience has to always be in response to grace, never in hopes of receiving grace. And I hope that you saw all those indicatives throughout this passage as we read. Just example after example after example of what God has done. Let me point a few of them out to you. Verse 1. God has given rest. This has long been promised. They've been at war for a long time. They've been unsafe for a long time, always having to look over their shoulder, always having to look over... God has given them rest just as He promised. Verse 3. It says... You've seen all that He's done for you. You've seen how He's fought for you. Verse 9, He's driven out the nations. In verse 10, He's done so with supernatural help. I loved how, as Jeff was reading from Leviticus 26, there was this promise that we see fulfilled here, right? This, this exponential return on your investment that one will put a thousand to flight. That's supernatural. That's God showing up and doing this just as He promised. Verse 14, we're reminded yet again that not one word, not a single word of all the promises of God have failed. Every one of them has come to pass. They've been fulfilled. Indicative, indicative, indicative that precedes any of their obedience. Again, think of how this makes Christianity unique among world religions. Because in, in all the other religions, it's, well, you better try really hard. You, you, you better seek to appease the little g-gods. And who knows, perhaps they might be pleased by that. Perhaps they'll receive your little trinkets and your sacrifices and whatever food you're offering at whatever altar to whatever God, perhaps it'll be okay. Maybe they'll look favorably on you. At least maybe they'll just be less mad at you because the little G-gods are, are mad and they need to be appeased. But the scandalous gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is that the Father is already pleased with you. He's already pleased with you because of a sacrifice, but it's nothing you can bring. He's already pleased with you because of the righteous life and the sacrifice of His Son on your behalf. You see, no sacrifices that we could bring are required to make God happy with us. No, this God sacrificed Himself to make that happen. 
what other religion in the world? None. Y'all, that's the kind of unbelievable grace that enables and motivates our obedience. It's that kind of scandalous grace from which flows glad-hearted and willing obedience. And so here's the lesson from this first point. If obedience flows from grace, then we better be well-versed in all the ways that He's blessed us. We better be well-versed in the many, many ways He's poured out His grace upon us. We need to be reminded of them. We need to remember them. We need to remind others. Y'all, in very large measure, this is what our worship is about. That's what we're doing this morning. We're being reminded. We're reminding each other. We're counting our many blessings. Naming them one by one. Right? Count your many blessings. See. See. Remember what God has done. Second point. Obedience also flows from the promise of future grace. Now what do I mean by that? Obedience comes from what God has already done and from what He's promised yet to do. Look at verse 5. See, this possessing of the land is still a work in progress. Some folks still need to be driven out. But here's the promise right in the midst of this. The Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight and you shall, future tense, possess their land. It's promised not to worry, folks. God's going to keep doing what He has been doing. And so if the first lesson was to remember promises kept... Right To remember graces that have already been poured out, the lesson here is to keep believing in the promises as yet unfulfilled. So what would that be? What would some of those promises be? Well, let's think specifically in terms of our obedience, because that's what we're talking about this morning. What promises has He made as it relates to our obedience? Well, how about that He's going to finish the work that He started? Philippians 1.6 He began the good work, He'll finish it. That's a pretty good promise to claim as it relates to obedience. How about the fact that He has promised to conform us to Christ? Right? That's what we've been predestined for ultimately, is conformity to the image of His Son, Romans 8.29. How about the fact, and oh, this is good, this is needed, because the struggle, y'all, is hard, Right? How about the fact that He won't let us be tempted beyond what we can bear? 1 Corinthians 10.13 Y'all, those are promises worth claiming, promises worth believing, and if we will believe those and trust those, obedience is going to flow out of that. Obedience is going to flow from our belief in future grace. Point number three. You might look at this and say, well, duh. 
but you need to look carefully at it. Our obedience is focused on God's Word. Look at verse 6. Because here's the, the therefore verse. Here's the shift verse. Right? Therefore, in light of all of these indicatives, right? and it's not just in this chapter, it's the first 22 chapters, remember. Therefore, and we've got our imperative specifically stated, be careful to keep and to do. So note number one, that we've got to be careful to do it. We're not just going to accidentally stumble upon a life of obedience. It's not going to be, whoops, (laughs) would you look at that? Would that it were so, uh, but that's not the case. It's going to have to be intentional. It's going to have to be thoughtful. It's going to have to be purposeful. Note well also that we're called to comprehensive obedience, right? It's all that is written in the book of the law. Not just the easy parts, not just your favorite little bits, all of it. You mean even the parts that I haven't read yet? Yes. Note to the, the precision, for lack of a better word, that we're called to. Right? No deviations. Right? No plus or minus 3% margin of error, right? All of it and turning aside neither to the right nor the left. God's Word is, is the standard. This imperative zeroes in with laser-like focus on God's Word. And that only makes sense... It, that this would be the only way because where else are we going to know His character? Where else are we going to know His will? How will we know what pleases Him? And the lesson for this one I hope is obvious. We've got to know His Word. If the standard is all of it and turning neither to the right or the left, we've got to know it all. Y'all, the, the, the Trinity together reading plan, this, this a chapter a day thing that many of us are doing together, It's not just something to help pass the time. How our worship services are designed, saturated with Scripture. Reading sometimes some very long passages that you start to squirm and you're like, gosh, this is so long. When's he going to get to the end? Y'all, we don't do that just because we couldn't think of more entertaining things to do. We do it because we so desperately need to hear from God again and again and again. And y'all, our obedience depends on it. Fourth point, which is really two points, but I cheated and I made one point out of them. Obedience is clinging and obedience is loving And we don't often think about it like that. Verse 8. So it it continues to flesh out this imperative. Verse 6 was you need to keep, you need to do. Verse 8 now brings in this interesting thing that we need to cling. Some of your translations will say cleave. Some will say hold fast. And as you read the Bible, there's lots of words and terms that are used to relate to obedience, right? There's, there's striving, there's, there's working, there's walking. But y'all, I love this one. This one adds a little twist that I think that we need. 
Because what, what do you cling to? Think about that word cling. What do you cling to? As I was thinking about that, several things came to my mind. Um, we cling to things that are beautiful. If someone gave you a handful of diamonds or something, right? You, you'd cling to that pretty tightly. <laughs> you'd hold on to that. We cling to things that are precious to us. I was thinking about memories of, of loved ones, right? The, the voice of a loved one, the, the laugh, a particular mannerism about someone that we're missing. Right? We cling to those things. They're precious to us. We don't want to lose that. We don't want to let it go. And we also cling to things in desperation, right? It's rough seas, our boat has capsized, and someone throws us a life preserver, right? Are you going to cling to that? I think you are. Cling to the Lord your God is the command for all of these reasons. Cling to Him because He's beautiful. Cling to Him because nothing compares. Cling to Him because He's precious. Cling to Him because your life depends on it. And see, here's the thing about clinging. And we see this in the, in the text. Our hearts were made to cling. Right? Our hearts are going to cling to something. We don't need lessons in clinging. They're, they're bent. They're predisposed to clinging the problem is what we cling to. And so we've got examples in this text of what not to cling to, right? These pagan nations around you to their people in marriage and certainly not to their little g gods and to their worship. Instead, cling to the Lord your God. And very closely related in verse 11 is this idea that obedience is loving be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. Again, we've got to be careful. It's not just going to happen. It's not like modern culture wants to typify love and certainly falling in love. Right? You're not just going to trip and stumble your way into loving God, heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's a conscious choice. It's an it's an ongoing decision. It's a wonderful mixture of our emotions and our wills. And so the lesson here is there's got to be a shift in our thinking when it comes to obedience. We need all of what the Bible has to say about obedience. It's helpful to think in terms of working and striving. But if if all obedience is to you is hunkering down and gritting your teeth and slogging it out, trying to choke down some bad-tasting medicine, then you're missing like 90% of what obedience is. Probably 90% of how the Bible refers to obedience. Think about over and over and over 
how the Bible portrays disobedience as marital unfaithfulness. Right? Loving a lesser lover instead of the Lord your God. We've got to be clinging. We've got to be loving because He's beautiful, because He's precious. And this all flows out of those first three points. Right? We will cling to Him when we're reminded of how He's lavished grace upon us. We will love Him and cling to Him when we're reminded of the promises as yet unfulfilled. And as we see Him in all of His beauty and all of His glory as He's revealed in His Word, we will cling and we will love. Now this chapter, chapter 23, ends on somewhat of a sour note. This fifth point... This is where it dovetails in so nicely with that Leviticus 26 that Jeff read for us earlier. Our obedience prevents God's anger and our destruction. You see, the chapter is full of the mighty acts of God on behalf of His people. They truly are wonderful. But those aren't the only mighty acts at God's disposal. Because in a covenant relationship... There are blessings and there are curses. We saw that so clearly, maybe painfully clearly in Leviticus 26. For those who are unfaithful to the provisions of the covenant, the mighty hand of God awaits too. We we see it most clearly in verse 13 and then in verse 15 here. Verse 13, know for certain. right? So this comes on, on... on the heels of all the, all the ways that God has acted for His people and on behalf of His people. But know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you. But He's going to cause them to be a snare and a trap, a whip and thorns until you perish. Good night. Look at verse 15. All right. Just as all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you have been fulfilled to you, so the Lord will bring upon you all the the evil things until He has destroyed you from off this good land. Now, let's explain this a little bit. Let's try to make sense of this. This this is not uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. This isn't happy God of blessing on one hand until you tick him off and oh, then he's... No, that's not what we're dealing with here. Um, So God has clearly stated if you cling to that which should not be clung to, if you love a lesser lover, God will take action. And if you know the story of God's people, you know that this is just ominous foreshadowing right because they're going to cling they're, they're going to be unfaithful and they're, they're going to love other lovers and so here's how we best understand the the strong hard harsh uh, action uh, of god he is jealous he is jealous number one for his own glory And number two, he's jealous for our good. He knows what is best for us. And he wants to make it very difficult for us to find satisfaction 
in anything other than Himself. Right? We, we sang, the, y'all, look back to those lyrics of that, of that hymn, that satisfied. Right? All the filth that we gathered around us thinking it was going to sate our hunger, quench our thirst, and it only mocked our soul's sad cry. He wants to make it very difficult for us to be satisfied in anything other than Himself. And so when necessary, He brings His discipline. He brings the hard things, the evil things, the dark things into our lives to try to wake us up. To try to snap some sense into us. And y'all, there is certainly a graciousness to this that I don't want you to miss. It is hard. It is not something that we want to go through. But it is His gracious hand trying to protect, trying to prevent, trying to bring us back. And so first, it's grace to the individual. Right? That, that he or she might repent, might be rescued before it's too late. But if not, then this individual grace can become a corporate grace if, if the individual will not repent, if the individual will not come to their senses. then the Lord will cut off the one to preserve the many. The Lord will cut off the one that His people might be spared. Right? We've seen that in Joshua. Right? Achan was cut off and his people were spared. Is that easy to swallow? No. Is it the grace of God? Absolutely. You don't want to face the anger or the destruction of the Lord. They are promised for the disobedient. And it must be now that we respond. It has to be now. It cannot wait. Because see, we're not promised two things. right? Sometimes we want to wait. Sometimes we want to put it off. We think, well, there's always tomorrow. Well, no, there's not always tomorrow. That's the first thing that we're not promised. None of us knows. None of us knows if we have a tomorrow or what tomorrow will bring. And the other thing is this. We're not promised that on tomorrow we'll have a soft heart and we'll have an inkling to repent. If it's today and you've got an inkling to repent, you better do it. You better repent while it's still called today, comes the warning from Hebrews. And perhaps... Your very first act of obedience. Perhaps the very first thing that you would consider is to bend your knee and submit yourself to the one who has tasted God's anger and who himself experienced destruction for you. In your place. 
Y'all, we've got to taste that reality. We've got to taste that indicative, that statement of fact before we'll ever obey. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Oh Lord Jesus, we thank You. We praise You that You left Your throne. That You humiliated Yourself. That You lived righteously and yet You still tasted the Father's anger, His displeasure, His wrath that our sins brought about. Lord Jesus, You were destroyed for us. You were destroyed in our place. And we thank You and we praise You for it. And we pray that by the working of Your grace that an ever-increasing apprehension of that reality, a recognition of that grace, an understanding of what You did, that that would cause us to cling that that would cause us to love heart, soul, mind, and strength. We pray these things in Christ's name and for His sake. Amen.